In June of 2011, a boy from Glasgow, Scotland, did the unthinkable. He made headlines when he murdered his foster adoptive mother. The 14-year-old stabbed Don McKenzie 10 times in the head and throughout her body. Why he did so may be even more disturbing. You see, according to reports, the boy was upset at his foster adoptive mother because she had punished him for bad behavior. She had grounded him and had taken away his Xbox, laptop, and phone, the things that she had given him. You see, we know further in the story, these foster adoptive parents took this boy out of a very abusive situation. And this is how he repays their love. If unwanted, and then adopted, and then cared for by someone who showers us with love, how would we repay them? Would we ever want to hurt them? Would we ever disregard them? Would we ever go to the extent of murdering them? Of course not. But how can we do something as horrific as rejecting the one who has loved us, the unwanted? Horror the thought, we would never do something like that. But truth be told, that is exactly what we do almost every day to our Lord, the one who has adopted us and called us his children. Our story is a story of a love story that has gone wrong. And we are the culprits, we are the offenders of what should have been an amazing love story. How in the world do things that begin so well slide into such tragedy? That is the question we want to take a look at this morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. To Ezekiel chapter 16 as we continue our series entitled Watchmen, studying the book of Ezekiel. Knowing how a love story goes so wrong can help us to be the watchmen of our generation to call out what is wrong, wrong when we see it. And it begins with our very own lives. As you're turning to Ezekiel chapter 16, you should know that Ezekiel's Ezekiel chapter 15, 16, and 17 is a series of three parables about God's divine judgment on Israel. But we're going to be focusing this morning on the parable of the love story recounted in chapter 16. Read with me in your Bibles as I read from verses 1 to 5 of Ezekiel chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loath on the day you were born. In this parable that begins, Ezekiel chapter 16, 
The prophet Ezekiel illustrates Jerusalem representing the people of Israel as being like one who was born unwanted, unloved, uncared for. Why was she unwanted? Verse 3 gives us a clue. Jerusalem is described as one coming from a mixed marriage. In the ancient Near East, if you were the child of a mixed marriage, you were looked down upon. In fact, in verse 4, we're told that when the baby was born, the normal care and love afforded to a newborn was not administered to this child. No one cut the umbilical cord. This child was not wrapped in warm swaddling cloths. In fact, verse 5 tells us that no one pitied this child. No one showed compassion to Israel. Literally, this child is pictured as one who has been cast, thrown into an open field, left to die. No one cares because she was so unwanted. She was loathed. She was unloved. Not a person would have cared if she died, left in that depressed state until someone sees her. Look at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. The Lord God looked upon Israel, the child, And for no other reason, other than by His grace, willed that that child would survive. Live, He says, not once, but two times. And because God is the omnipotent, sovereign God, this unwanted, left-to-die child lives. And in verse 7, it tells us that under the care of God, this child thrived. This child grew. This child became very beautiful. Verse 8. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And note these words. And you became mine says the Lord God. In this wonderful turn of events, the child matures and is of marriageable age. It is then that God enters into a marriage covenant with the people of Israel. And note that last phrase in verse 8. You become mine. God adopts this nation as His chosen people. What was once an unloved unwanted, insignificant people living in Jerusalem now has a very special covenanted relationship with the Holy One, the true God. Jerusalem, this child, was now loved by God, protected by God, owned by God as part of His covenant. You are mine. And if you were to read verses 9 to 12, which I encourage you to do at home, verses 9 to 12 talks about the lavish adornment placed on Jerusalem, placed on Israel, 
befitting a royal bride, she becomes a queen. And indeed, historically, the previously insignificant city of Jerusalem becomes a powerful capital known throughout the ancient Near East, becomes a beautiful city admired by all, specifically under the reign of King David and King Solomon. Verse 13 and 14. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded, note this, to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect, note this, through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. The beauty of this once ignored city was now known throughout the ancient Near East. And I want you to note that the reason it is described as a perfect city was because of my splendor. The splendor of the glory of God resided uniquely in the temple of God in Jerusalem. The beauty, the significance of this city was because of God's enabling grace to allow it to flourish when before no one cared about this little town. What a wonderful story. We all love this type of story. An unwanted baby left to die at the beginning, now cared for by someone who unconditionally pours out his love upon her to become a very beautiful woman who ascends to royalty. It is a happily ever after story. And if you're going to trace the story, as we're going to do in chapter 16, the first phase of this love story, if you're taking notes, number one, is from absolutely unwanted to unconditionally loved. From absolutely unwanted to unconditionally loved. This is a story that is played out in every one of our lives this morning. We were unwanted people, tossed out to die, destined for hell, because we deserved it through our sins. And no one wanted to look upon us. No one cared enough that we were going to be eternally damned No one shared their compassion with us. Everyone looked out for their own good. And we were left to die with no way to save ourselves, just like that baby wallowing in its blood. But the Lord passed by, and He looked upon us with His love, not because we deserve it, but because of His grace. And so the Bible tells us He saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Lovingly cared for us. Adored us with all good things from above. Brought us into royalty. We who deserve nothing, He brought us into royalty that we have the privilege of being called children of God. And we enjoyed a great relationship with Him. And we lived happily ever after. If only the story ended here. But it doesn't. If you look at your lives this morning, 
Does your story end here? Taken out of insignificance, made to be of significance as a child of God, and you too enjoying wonderful fellowship. It should have ended this way, but it doesn't. Look what happens. Verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Israel forgot that it was God who enabled that beauty to be known by all. Israel became proud because of her standing among the nations. Sadly, she used her beauty, the Bible says in verse 15, to prostitute herself, to sell herself to other gods. And if you were to read verses 16 to 19, you would be shocked as I was. In verses 16 to 19, it goes into vivid detail how Israel took all that God has blessed her with and offered those very things, the riches, the food, and he offered those very things not back to the living God, Yahweh, but to false gods. In fact, Israel took all that which God has blessed her with and fashioned them into idols and worshiped them. Israel committed spiritual adultery. In fact, in verses 20 to 21, to show you the depravity of what this child did, now a woman, Israel went to the extent of offering human sacrifices, which is an abomination to God, to false gods. Nowhere in the scriptures does the true living God call us to sacrifice humans to him so that he will be pleased. That is how far the people of Israel had moved in depravity by the time of Ezekiel. Are you shocked? You should be. How does one go from being unconditionally loved to doing something like this? Let me put it into our context. It's the same as if you were to take a gift, perhaps, that your spouse gave you on your wedding anniversary, a wedding anniversary gift. How many of you would take your wedding anniversary gift given by your spouse and then in turn give it to your mistress? Would any of you do that? And if you had the audacity to do that, you would be condemned by all of your friends. You would be condemned by everyone in this world. Would you go to the extent of giving your child to someone else to live as a slave? Horror the thought. No parent could do something like that. And yet this is exactly how Israel is pictured and what they are doing to the Lord. Look at verse 22. And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. 
it broke the heart of God that the people of Israel didn't remember the days of their youth. They didn't remember that they were left unwanted, unloved, uncared for, ready to die in a field. They completely forgot that and threw themselves to others. Lest you condemn Israel, I want you to look at yourself. This is what happens every time we sin. Every time we sin. Every time we turn away from God, His heart is grieved. Every time. Every sin, His heart is grieved. And He is saying, don't they remember the day when they were destined for the fiery pits of hell with no way to save themselves, have they forgotten me already? I want you to think about that as I have challenged myself to think about that whenever I decide I want to sin. Do we no longer remember what he did for us? Apparently not. You see, the second phase of this love story, number two, is that it goes from unconditionally loved to unashamed betrayal. Unconditionally loved to unashamed betrayal. It wasn't just a simple betrayal. It was an unashamed betrayal. That's when the love story goes wrong. When we are no longer ashamed to throw ourselves to others when our love should be directed at God. Verses 23 to 29 talks about how the people of Israel deepened in their love for these false gods. How idolatry spread and permeated every aspect of their society. In fact, they actually went out and searched for other gods to worship. They went out and searched for other foreign gods to worship instead of worshiping the living God, Yahweh. And that led them to lust after the foreign gods of Egypt, verse 26, of Assyria, verse 28, and even of Babylon, verse 29. Now during this time, God tried to bring them back through minor discipline, through a slap on the hand, to try to get their attention. Verse 27 talks about how he limited their land he limited their blessings so that they would wake up. In fact, that's the full premise or the, or, or the purpose of chapter 15, which we don't have time to study, but I hope you'll go back and read when you get home. Chapter 15 is the parable of the vine, a vine that produces no fruit. And the question is asked, what is the use of a vine that produces no fruit? The answer is nothing. And this is depicting Israel given opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance, to be the nation and the people that God wanted them to be. But as chapter 15 verse 8 tells us, because they persisted in unfaithfulness, they were judged. Because they were unashamed in their betrayal. It's a strong word, but it is a word that describes what they were doing. It was a betrayal. Look at verse 27. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, 
diminished your allotment and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. The people of Israel didn't flinch. They didn't return back to God. In fact, so idolatrous was their ways that even the pagan Philistines were shocked. Imagine that. A pagan people, the Philistines, were shocked at the idolatrous nature of the people that were supposed to be worshiping the one true God. Why? Because at least the pagan Philistines were loyal to their false gods. The people of Israel were not. They threw themselves on pretty much every god out there except the one god that mattered, the living one, Yahweh. Verses 30 to 34 illustrates the depth of this betrayal. Israel is depicted as a shameless prostitute But there was a major difference. Look at verse 34. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given you. Therefore, you are the opposite. Not only was this woman described as a prostitute, She was unlike any other. You see, as a prostitute, you sell yourself, you sell your body to others. But not Israel. Israel didn't sell itself to others for a payment. Instead, she paid others to be with her. One of a kind. The ultimate insult to the Lord You don't adulterate yourself to someone else because you don't get anything out of it. Prostitutes sell their bodies so that they will have money. I don't think there's any prostitute out there today, not that I would know, who would pay someone else to want them. Pay someone else to give them attention, how far Israel had fallen, where we read a few verses before that Israel, with her God-given beauty, was attracting the nations of the world to her. But now she has to pay to get that same attention. And even though she had fallen so far, she doesn't turn back to God. When I read this again this week after a long time, I was shocked. I wrote in the margins of my Bible, this is so messed up. This is wrong on so many levels. You think to yourself, what what craziness is this? How could Israel be so vile? The more you read it, the more you get angry. A harlot, a prostitute who pays others to be with her instead of getting paid? You should be upset for the honor of God at this great betrayal. You should be mad. But if you're going to be mad at Israel, you should be mad at yourself. Because of the realization 
And as I was mad for the honor of God against Israel, I realized I needed to be mad at myself. Because you and I do this every day. We throw ourselves to a world that has offered us nothing. Ridiculously, we pay the world with our time, with our energies, with our resources, so that the world that has offered us nothing and has done nothing for us will hopefully adore us. And even if you think that perhaps the world offers you something of worth, it's only temporary. Think about it. Pleasure lasts only for a night. Prestige and praise last only in that moment. Wealth and riches last at most only in a human lifetime. But like Israel, we as Christians throw ourselves to the world and we say, take me, take me, take me, accept me. I'm willing to give up my character. I'm willing to give up my reputation. I'm willing to give up my integrity. I'm willing to give up my purity. I'm willing to give up my walk with God just so that you will take me and accept me. My friends, we are no better than a prostitute. As we pay the world with our time and our effort and our money with the hopes that they'll take us. And all the while, the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place, to die in our place, is grieving in disbelief. Tell me this isn't true in your life. How can you and I betray the one unashamedly who has loved us so deeply? It's the same as if we were to go to a complete stranger who has done nothing for us and start to do chores for them, to bring them food, to paint their homes. They don't say thank you. They don't give you any money. You wish they'll love you back in return, but they never do. While you completely ignore your own elderly parents who raised you, we'd look at a situation like that and we would condemn it in a heartbeat. Everyone would say, well, that's so wrong. But that's exactly what we do to God. But why do we not have a problem with it? It is unashamed betrayal. We completely disregard how wrong it is and we go on living our life worse than a prostitute. I know those words are harsh, but those are the words in the Scripture. That is the description that the Bible uses to wake up the generation of Ezekiel's time, but also to wake up the generation of our time today. You don't hear people preaching through the book of Ezekiel because the words are harsh and they are hard. No wonder there are such few watchmen of our generation. But it's harsh because it's to get us to think. We're no better than a prostitute in our spiritual adultery that we exhibit in this life. 
because Israel played the harlot, she will be punished. And that's what verses 35 to 43 talks about, the third phase of this love story gone wrong. From unashamed betrayal to purposed punishment. From unashamed betrayal to purposed punishment. How will God punish Israel? You know how? God will punish Israel by allowing Israel to have what she's always wanted. You say, what kind of punishment is that? Look at verse 37. God says, Israel, you want the foreign gods of other lands? They are your lovers. Go, lie in bed with them. Be with them. And you will die in bed with them. And historically we see that. The people of Israel who so craved to worship the gods of the Assyrians and the god of the Babylonians are destroyed by the very people they wanted to be like. They were destroyed by the Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians in the south. As a side note, my friends, don't ever get mad when God doesn't give you what you want. Don't be mad at God when He doesn't give you what you've always wanted. Do you ever think about the possibility that God doesn't give you what you want because he loves you and he's protecting you? Do you ever think about the fact that if you actually got what you wanted, perhaps you're under discipline? If a child asks his parent for a real gun at the age of seven, what parent in their right mind would give a seven-year-old a real gun. We wouldn't because we love that child. We want to protect that child. An unloving parent would give that child everything they want. Keep in mind that God in his punishment, a purposed one, may give you what you've always wanted. And God gave Israel to the foreign enemies that she so craved to be with, and they killed her, and they took everything that they have accumulated to the exile. Verse 39. I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. Here is another way of God's purposed punishment. He'll leave you with nothing because He has the right to take back what He has given you. Look at verse 39. Look how it's constructed. It's describing Israel back before God looked upon her with grace, naked and bare. She's returned back to the same condition before the betrayal. A true fall from grace. God had given her all this beautiful jewelry, finally clothed her, adorned her. All was now taken away from her. God says, you've forgotten that all good things 
come from me. And if you're going to betray me, listen carefully, I am under no obligation to give you what's mine. We as Christians have forgotten that. We play the harlot thinking that God owes us all the wonderful things in life. But he doesn't. The reason we have these things is by his grace. And oftentimes, God, in his purpose punishment, will allow us to lose all that he has graciously given us to get our attention. Often it takes the removal of that which we were so used to having to get our attention. Losing something is often, unfortunately, the wake-up call to the reality of what you've lost. I've counseled, counseled all too many who've strayed from their spouse. They often always regret the spouse they lost in the process. Tell me, Pastor, I took him for granted. I took him for granted. He or she really was a great person. But now they're lost. Welcome to the reality of your situation. What is the purpose of this discipline and punishment? Look at verse 41, the second part to verse 43. And I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. So I will lay to rest my fury toward you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. God says that when his covenanted people, Israel, will no longer continue in sin, then his discipline, his purpose punishment, will end. They had forgotten, verse 43 again, that the one who had made her so great and so beautiful in the first place had been forgotten and betrayed. When she finally turns back and realizes her error, God's discipline will end. Men and women understand that for the Christian life, repentance of sin is vastly important so that you, if you're under God's discipline, can come out from under it. The Bible tells us in verse 42, I will be quiet and be angry no more. When you do what? When you cease playing the harlot. When will we wake up to the reality that many of us are undergoing God's judgment because we play the harlot to the world. In verses 44 to 52, Jerusalem is compared to his wicked sisters, Samaria and Sodom. Samaria is a city in the north and Sodom a city in the south. Both were wicked, and in their wickedness, God punished them 
So why was Jerusalem compared to Sodom and Samaria? Because God was saying, as I punish them, so I will punish you. They were not specially chosen as my people. You were, but you will still be punished. The punishment that God has purposed is fair for all, for Israel and for all other nations. Likewise, remember that God's purpose punishment is for all people. You see, Christians have the notion that somehow they are exempt from God's purpose punishment just because they are His children. If you read the Scriptures, you'll understand that the Bible actually teaches us that we will receive God's more severe judgment because we actually know the truth. God deals with us in the same way. No special favors, no exemption. No exemption for Israel, no exemption for us as Christians in His purposed punishment. It's a good reminder for all of us. But there is hope. And the chapter ends in verse 53 to 63 with the fourth act of this parable. Number four. From purposed punishment to loving restoration. From purposed punishment to loving restoration. Verses 53 to 57 speaks of the promised national restoration of the cities of Jerusalem, Samaria, and even Sodom in the time of the millennium. In fact, Jerusalem and the people of Israel will be sorry for what she did when she betrayed the Lord. And God lovingly restores her. Another outpouring of God's grace, similar to that time when she was an uncared-for baby left to die. A people that deserved no forgiveness was lovingly restored by His grace. Verse 53, Then I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captives of Samaria and her daughters. Then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. God says, when you repent, I will restore you. If I can forgive a people as wicked as Israel, I can forgive all people. My friends, this morning, some of you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Perhaps you think that the things that you have done are so bad that you are not worth saving or can be saved. Let me assure you, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us He makes all things new. And if you're a Christian this morning who has walked away from the Lord and the things that you have done, you believe God can never forgive, you have deeply betrayed Him, thrown yourself to the world, you can always come back to Him like the prodigal son coming back to his loving father because the prodigal son never stopped becoming the son. In fact, chapter 17 
is the parable of the two eagles. Again, we don't have time to discuss it, but go back and read it for yourself at home. It speaks of the rebellion of King Zedekiah against the king of Babylon. And in that rebellion, God uses Babylon to utterly destroy the nation of Israel. But chapter 17 is about God's restoration. Towards the last few verses, God says, I will restore my people from purposed punishment to loving restoration. God can forgive all people like you and me. Verse 58. You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord. Would you circle those words, paid for? That word paid for has nothing to do with salvation. It's talking about Israel bearing the shameful consequences of her sin. Now listen carefully. Salvation forgives us of our sins. That means those sins no longer prevent us from going to heaven and having an eternal life with God. But that salvation does no way negate if God allows the consequences of our sin. Even covenanted Israel had to pay a very heavy price for her adulterous ways. You see, a lot of Christians jump to the conclusion, the wrong conclusion, that somehow, as a Christian, if I sin and then quickly ask God to forgive me, that He really will forgive me and never punish me. So this is how the life cycle of a Christian goes. I commit sin, that evening I pray for forgiveness. Lord, I'll never do it again, please forgive me. And the next morning I commit the same sin, and that evening I pray, Lord, forgive me, I'll never do it again. And that cycle goes on and on about 10,000 times. And then we're in shock when we're caught in our sin. And then we stomp our feet and we say, Lord, I thought you forgave me. I ask for forgiveness every time. Well, the problem is you have the wrong theological notion of forgiveness. Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, enables our sins to be forgiven by God. But it does not negate the consequences of our sin. You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord. Israel, you've had to suffer because of what you did. And this is within the context of restoration. Verse 59 to 60. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. What a wonderful verse. God, in his discipline, still remembers his covenant with his people. In this context, his covenant with Israel. An everlasting, unconditional covenant established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, reiterated in Genesis chapter 15, and is still in effect today. It is an everlasting covenant, a promise by God that he will restore his people in spite of what they do. In the same way as Christians, 
we have a similar covenant. Throughout the scriptures, we are reminded that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. God's love for us will never be forgotten, always remembered. That's why we as a church affirm that once saved, always saved. Because when God enters into a covenant relationship with His children, when we place our trust in Him, He may punish us, we may betray Him, but our lives are securely in His hand. We can never outrun the love of God. Verse 61, to close the chapter 63. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. For I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant, speaking of the Mosaic covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant, speaking of the new covenant, repeated again in Jeremiah, with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord that you may be remembered and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame, then I provide you an, an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Would you circle those words, provide you an atonement in verse 63? You see, the reminder and fulfillment of God's covenant with His people Israel brings them into humility. Verse 63, their pride is no more. Their mouths are shut because there is nothing to be prideful for when God's grace is the one that provides you atonement. As believers, God's forgiveness of our sins, His atoning blood on the cross should not be a license for us to sin more. But the reminder of His atoning blood should cause us to be more humble. It's a humbling thought if you think about it. What right do we have to walk around, chest puffed up, full of pride? Don't you know who I am? God wants to answer, sure, I know who you were, and I know who you are. You were that baby left to die, wallowing in your own blood. You were the one that I came across and by my grace showed compassion to you. You were the one I allowed you to flourish and live under my care, that you grew to be a beautiful young man or young woman. You were the one who I entered into a covenant with, and I called you my child. You are the one I made your royalty when you deserve it not. You are the one that I adopted. And then you are the one that betrayed me. And you played the harlot. And you paid others to love you. Forgetting that I loved you unconditionally. And they gave you nothing, but I gave you everything. And you were the one that because of that, you lost everything. And you came back to me. And you asked me to forgive you. And I did. 
That is the story of your life and mine. Tell me, what pride do you have? What standing do you have to be boastful about your life and my life? Nothing. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is a humbling thought. It should humble you and me. This is a love story that has gone wrong, but this is a love story that was made right by the Savior, made right by Him, all by His grace. From absolutely unwanted to unconditionally loved, from unconditionally loved to unashamed betrayal, from unashamed betrayal to purposed punishment, from purposed punishment to loving restoration. That is the story of our lives. How do you want your story to end? No one's life ends after the first act because we all have sin. Sadly, many lives end after act two. They lived in betrayal, unashamed betrayal of the one that cared for them. And they die separated from God. There are many whose lives end after act three. They lived in purpose punishment, never repenting out of that punishment, their lives end. Sadly, few end their lives living under the loving restoration of our Heavenly Father. But you and I, I hope, will be challenged to make it to act for. Because the watchman of this generation is not a perfect person. Do you hear that? The watchman of this generation is not a perfect person. The watchman of this generation is a redeemed person, atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ, made holy, allowed benefits into heaven only by His grace. And to live in loving restoration is the message that will resonate in this generation. May it be so for each person in our church today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning looking at the story of our very lives. The story of Israel is the story of my life and our life. Thank you for your loving grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for calling us to attention when we need it. Thank you that a love story gone wrong because of us has been made right because of the cross. Raise up a generation of watchmen who are not perfect, but a watchman who stands redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.